Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about films or TV, anything that claims to be based on a true story, we ask, how bad did they mess it up? How much did they sacrifice to get a good story? Well, that's what we're here to find out, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Mark, and I know nothing about Japanese history. My name is Michael, and I know even less because I watched this film with delayed subtitles. My name is Jacob, and I know a little bit about Japanese history. Yes, that's right. It's a total role reversal. We've talked about doing Seven Samurai for uh, a long time now, and the reason it took this long is we realized it was going to fall on me to do the actual research, and I'm very slow, and I'm very sorry for all the insults I've given you guys over the years about how to do the research and how not to get obsessive with it, because I'd done, I'd done all of that. Um, but like, yeah, You're so, kicking um, off 2021 well, Jacob. Oh, yeah. how the tables have turned. How the tables have turned. And now look at you with your binder full of notes. Yeah, no, if, <laughs> if I had them printed out, it'd be a small forest dying. Like, I own apology to you, Michael. I always have told you to chill out. It's fine. You don't need a million notes. But I didn't know what it was like. Uh, and I've also said to you before, like, we don't need the entire history of the world leading up to this point. And then, of course, I've gone and done the entire history of Japan up until 1586. To be fair, I, I think... We don't really know anything about the history of Japan. That's why it's interesting to get that True. context. Um, but yeah, I'm just very sorry, guys. Look, it does happen. I think it's something we're we're both well aware of. It's it's one of these things where it's a real uh, it's a real like blank spot for me in terms of history. I just really don't know much about Japanese history at all. So um, I'm just pretty excited for somebody to be telling me what's going on rather than me being like, oh, well, well, actually, this Roman emperor, and actually, this is what happened. And a lot of people think this, but actually, it's this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, we're talking Japanese history, obviously, and we are talking about the famous movie, The Seven Samurai. So, Michael, why don't you give us a little, uh, little detail on the movie itself? Uh, well, it's obviously an extremely famous movie for a lot of reasons. It, it was directed by Akira Kurosawa, um, who has gone on to inspire directors for everyone from George Lucas ta- to Tarantino to Scorsese, uh, I suppose because of his te- technical abilities. Uh, it was written by Kurosawa as well and a guy called Hishimoto. Um, it's set in 16th century Japan and... It's brilliant, you know. Uh, it's it was released in 1954. The only thing to know about it is if you're going to sit down to watch this film, which I probably uh, was guilty of myself. I didn't realize it was going to be over three hours long. It's in black and white, and it's obviously heavily subtitled. So you do need to be committed to watch it. You know, it's not your average Hollywood blockbuster that you can turn off your brain. You know, you actually have to concentrate in this movie. Oh no! It's definitely, uh, it's definitely a, a long haul. It reminds me a little bit of the Irishman. You know, when you talk to people about it, they're like, "Oh, it's very long." So it's it's very long. And you're like, "Yeah, but what about?" It? Yeah, but it's very yeah. long. It's very long. Um, in in true Jacob fashion, now I have written a one sentence summary. It's a long <laughs> sentence. Okay, I, I I'll just say it's a long <laughs> sentence. Uh, but if you'd like to hear it, here it is. In feudal Japan, a listless ronin answers the call of desperate farmers and assembles a team of samurai to defend their village from the attack by a troop of violent bandits yeah it's beautiful it's pretty good beautiful. that's very good yeah beautiful okay. um yeah. it's uh <laughs> i could honestly spend like the whole hour talking about just the film uh but i'm i'm not going to because i have to yeah. fit a lot of history in um what i would say is 
it's a film that's beloved by filmmakers and then and like people who are you know cine- like really into films or whatever but it might not be super well known outside of that um just because it's an old film people don't necessarily watch them but i my opinion is that it completely holds up like i've watched a lot of old films cuz i studied film and everything and a lot of them i'm just like yeah whatever uh it's you know you watch it for the historical context of like how it influenced <laughs> other films you watch seven samurai at least sure. for me and maybe it's because I love Japan and Japanese history, but I, I'm like, this is still such a good film. And you watch other films that are made at that same time, and you're like, it is so different, but it's so much more similar to what we do today, film-wise, because it influenced so much. Like, practically, yes, but also just, like, the contents of the film, as far as, like, this is a, an Ocean's Eleven, this is like getting the gang together, this is pretty much the trope yeah. code codifier or whatever that sort of cemented the whole trope of like I'm gonna get a gang together and we have all these different characters and we're gonna do a mission um like it was remade as a western film the magnificent seven uh, without paying <laughs> Kuro Kurosawa um and it's but but beyond that like it's J- Kurosawa films have influenced Star Wars to a, a huge extent um Interestingly, it was also kind of inspired by Western films uh, because there were Western films that, that then he made, then Kurosawa made this very expensive, incredibly good Japanese film that then influenced coming generations of uh, Western films and uh, and so on. So um, I'm I'm going to stop because I could go on forever. <laughs> so even if you don't know, but even even yeah. if you don't know this film, you've seen it in other films, basically. Yeah. Yeah, de- de- that's definitely true. I-, I I definitely noticed that when I was watching it. Like, I I sort of caught myself at a point when I when I sort of realized what you just said there, Jacob. Where I was like, yeah. I've watched other movies in the fifties where you think, what is this? Like, because a lot of them are just sort of stage plays almost that are being filmed. But when you watch this, there's a point at which you kind of say, I've seen this before, or I've seen this kind of shot set up, or I've seen that like extreme close up, or like the sadness yeah. or the heroic shot and all that kind of. But this is the origin point actually of a lot of those a lot of those techniques and i am reminded uh of a conversation i had with you jacob a long time ago now probably a year and a half ago where you were just like oh because yeah. it influenced star wars because you know like the jedi <laughs> samurais and i was like mind blown <laughs> you know, it had never occurred to me that they were a samurai i don't know if that's how just how thick i am or what like but it never they're space samurai and i was like oh my god obviously they're space samurai that's so that's so obvious you know but yeah Definitely a heavily influential movie. Probably yeah. the most influential of the movies we've covered, I would say. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I want to talk about the film for ages, but I will start talking instead about the historical context. And so like where we're starting out in Seven Samurai, the world, like it, honestly to us, it might just seem like samurai pastiche like we don't know we just assume this is what the world looks like when it's quote-unquote samurai times you know (laughs) kind of like uh western or viking you're kind of like yeah we exist in the world of vikings or the world of uh gunslingers um but the period that we're in in 1586 it's called uh shinguko jidai which means the warring states period um it is fucking awesome it is a period of japanese history where it's a near constant civil war (laughs) social upheaval political intrigue uh and it's over like pretty much 150 years it is one of the most fascinating periods of time out of anywhere in the world in my opinion because it's game of thrones turned up to 11 for over 100 years and 
we can't cover the machinations and, and actual warfare of that time because it we just you could probably spend an hour talking about any year of this hundred year period. But there's just so much treachery and intrigue and so many different warlords vying for control of different areas. There's a lot of shit going on. And that's all led to the situation that basically the farmers are totally fucked in Seven Samurai and they have to kind of go on a last ditch effort to get someone to protect them from the bandits because no one's really doing it because it's a, a nation at war. So so just let's get a hold on, on some basics. So we're in a period of vast civil war so there's no unity in japan is there an emperor is there uh, someone who's nominally in control what's the political setup let's let's do the samurai for dummer, for dummies what's the <laughs> what's the sengoku period looking like? <laughs> yeah there uh, is i think the uh, japanese uh, emperor line it's the oldest still going uh, sort of uh, direct descendant monarchy or what have you in the world. I'll actually get into the supposed first emperor in a minute, but the important thing to understand oh, well. in this world is that there is an emperor and there's also a shogun. Um, there might be multiple shoguns at this point. I might be a bit confused on like that part, honestly, because uh, I've, I've covered leading up to Shingoku Jidai. I don't have like all the details because it's so chaotic at this time. Um, but basically... The emperor is a figurehead, and the shogun is the military commander of the land, and this has been the the, the state for a while. But what I'm interested in, in answering is how we get to this point, and if you will permit me, I will take a huge yeah. zoom back to the start of Japanese <laughs> history, which I know I've, I've complained to you guys before, but I do think it's relevant. Is it okay? <laughs> Can I do that? Yeah, let's go. Yeah, <laughs> jump all the way back. Right. So... Japan, right? It's a chain of islands <laughs> that took shape about 20,000 years ago. It was, you'll note it's a crescent, right? So it was originally connected uh, to right. the larger Asian landmass at the top and bottom, um, which obviously with rising uh, water levels uh, became disconnected. So it's likely people first cross over via the land bridge. Uh, there's four larger islands, hundreds of smaller ones. Um, we once thought inhabitants dated back only about 5,000 uh, BC. Um, but now we're pretty sure that they were present before then, maybe as early as like 30,000 years ago. Um, we don't know. They probably crossed oh, well. over the, on the land bridges. Um, basically, we're early civilization we know from pottery. Like all the different peoples are kind of named after the types of pottery they made. Uh, Yomon is one where it sort of means rope-marked pottery, which named the whole uh, period from 10,000 BC to 300 BC. Nice um, hobby. So... Basically, these were hunter-gatherers. We don't know that much, obviously, because you, you never really know that much about uh, prehistoric peoples. Um, but the important thing to note, then, is that sophisticated agriculture made a huge change, as it does everywhere. So that would have been about 500 BC. Wet rice farming became sort of the, the established thing to do. And there was probably a result of immigrants from the continent, um, so you've probably seen like rice fields in Asia and everything. You have to drain the land and level it and irrigate it. And it's, of course, it's yeah. an operation that demands a lot of human Irrigation. efforts and yeah. coordination, um, which means we know that sort of communities developed uh, and these techniques spread and larger populations could grow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so basically at this point, rice growing, metalworking and cloth making, uh, all of that came from Asia. Um, like the influence of China in particular on Japan cannot be understated uh, at all uh, because it's like everything's coming over from there. 
one of the few things we know, again, this is like going back to hundreds of years BC. We know some people were treated preferentially, which shows that there is sort of a social stratification where some people are leaders and some people aren't. But comparing it to China, I think before looking into it, I'm like, Japan, yeah, you know, they've had an empire for forever and ever. <laughs> but like Japanese, they were far <laughs> from being as yeah. quote unquote civilized as the Chinese at this point. They had no written script at all until about 400 AD. That's AD, 400 years. So, like, they were still... Everything we know from this period is Chinese people who, you know, obviously their civilization had been going for ages and ages. Somewhat influenced maybe by the isolation of the islands. Yeah, for sure. If they're separated out, maybe it's, it's, yeah, it's causing some kind of a a disconnect from the broader trading worlds that influenced China. And Jacob, even even Buddhism would have come from China and had such a big influence on Japan then. Michael, don't get me started on Buddhism. <laughs> it only makes me episode. angry. That's, that's another episode. <laughs> no, we're going to get into Buddhism. I got some notes. <laughs> but uh, I said I was going to mention the first emperor, right? And uh, yes, according yes, to legend... Um, uh, the first emperor ascended the throne on the 11th of February, the first day of spring in 660 BC. This is uh, not true. Uh, <laughs> this is something... <laughs> I was going to say, that's very specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Especially because, as I said, they didn't even write things down until like about a thousand years later. Um, so <laughs> basically, uh, this was... It probably inspired way later by a Chinese notion called time cycles. So in China at the time, every 58th year, it's considered important. So important stuff happens every 58th year. And 660 BC was the 58th cycle of a 21st cycle, which is when even more important stuff happens. So basically in retrospect... Obviously. Oh, wow, obviously. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so in retrospect, they just <laughs> added in yeah. like, yeah, no, this emperor definitely ascended on uh, this date. But that that, did, that we don't I, I don't think that happens that didn't happen um but if you want to know more about like actual uh first rulers interestingly the first recorded i think the first named person uh in japanese history is a woman um himiko who was basically moving ahead like i'm, I'm going to jump ahead to like the third century um so yeah, we're yeah. hundreds of years ahead because there okay. isn't like i said there's not much written down um so the Japanese uh, people, they, they were living not in a state. They were in like, you know, over 100 communities, 30 sort of mini states, it would be, have been considered. And uh, remind you of a feudal Europe nearly. Well, yeah. not really because... Pre-feudal Europe even. Yeah. Tribal Europe. Maybe. Yeah, because it gets very feudal later on. Uh, it does, but it, was, it wasn't organized enough to be feudal at this point. Um, so... Himiko, the earliest named person in Japanese history, was basically a queen, I guess, in retrospect, we might call her that, someone who occupied herself with magic and sorcery, supposedly had a thousand women attendants and only one man. Um, She was sort of a female shaman and a high priestess. Um, And this is sort of in the years of 221, 265. She ruled for a lot of years, again, not over Japan necessarily, but over sort of 30 uh, mini states. So, you know, probably a significant um, portion of the world. But the reason I bring this up is just... I obviously want to talk about samurai. We want to talk about samurai, where they came into being. But, like, you have to understand the the uh, class structure that sort of emerges over the hundreds of years leading up to samurai coming into the picture. Um, 
So at this point, everything was divided into clans, um, where a clan was sort of a social and political and religious group, where each clan has a kami, which is a spiritual, like it's a god uh, in Shintoism or a spiritual creature. So the kami sort of represents them. And the idea is that the power flows from the kami to the leader of the clan to the subordinates. And that's kind of been a mental way of thinking in Japan that's been consistent up until like the 1950s, basically. Mm. So this is the is is it this is sort of like the the Japanese the sort of notion of the uh, reverence for the uh, the ancestor or the reverence for the elder that's that's sort of all informed by this kind of this kind of culture or this kind of context. The, the kami thing specifically is it, Shintoism is really interesting because it's sort of uh, I might get the phrases wrong but I think it's sort of animistic a- a- animism or whatever where everything has a spirit. Yeah. Um, interestingly, like people say that in Japan. Just people are just more careful with secondhand things. Like if you go into a secondhand shop in Japan, everything is so meticulously cared for in great quality. And it's said that that might be in part because people are raised with the understanding that everything has a spirit that you look after it. Like if you sl- slam the table, you don't want to hurt like well, Mister Table, okay. you know, <laughs> Table San. It's not like a thing people <laughs> literally believe, but there is a that sort of thought that everything, yeah, that everything has a spirit. Well, it's informed the culture, and as far as power. It, it, back in these days it came from that spirit this is before buddhism and before confucianism and everything came and kind of fucked everything up uh <laughs> but uh came in and ruined japan it was doing fine on its own and then a fucking buddhist well, i'll tell you why in a minute but uh himiko anyway she ruled potentially for about 50 or 60 years and was buried in a huge burial mound with like 100 attendants that they burned they burned them <laughs> to uh, make them join her wow. yeah speaking of the burial mounds like the next period of time in japanese history which again I d- th- these the names of these periods won't be on the written like they're not on the test but uh it's uh, it's called the kofun period and it's named after the large burial mounds that are kind of keyhole shaped if you google emperor nintoku tomb okay you'll see like a huge keyhole like you're looking at it from above it's 820 meters long um and it's not necessarily super tall but it's just an impressive weird thing that's what they were doing oh yeah i'm looking i'm looking at it now yeah. the mausoleum of the emperor in osaka and so it was common practice for all the servants and the household to die with the royal household or it, whatever it was uh say with himiko during uh, the yayoi period but uh, sorry about the pronunciation <laughs> but when you head into the kofun period uh they had the idea that maybe we'll just make clay figures to represent <laughs> these people and put them in the tomb so basically they were like <laughs> maybe don't literally kill everyone i don't remember the exact reason or maybe we don't know but i think it was kind of like wow we just burned like a hundred people that's kind of a waste and they uh started making clay figures to represent the servants who would then go with them into the other world without having to be set on fire which is nice that is way more sensible yeah. and it also improves your local economy for crafts yes yeah, exactly know? um so Heading into this period of the, the keyhole period, where the tombs are all fail, uh, shaped like keyholes, um, the emperor. So there is some banner of emperor, uh, obviously, at this point, and they're ruling over a more unified Japan. Uh, but clans still have a lot of autonomy. Um, it's more of a confederation of separate clans than, like, you know, a, a supreme ruler. And basically, over the next few periods, uh, the emperors solidified their position and became more powerful. And I, I want to go through uh, how that happened exactly. But did you have a question mark? And maybe just, uh, maybe just on that on that point, and maybe maybe you don't know. I, I don't know. But is it so? The clans have a, a large degree of uh, um, 
authority and power within within their own structures. And then the emperor is sort of loosely a confederate leader. Does he have a maybe you don't know, but does he have a sort of like a religious role? Is it a like God? A, is it like yeah. something they all agree with, or is there is there some kind of a forced authority? Um, well, there I'll say this as well. It's not necessarily always a he at this point, um, because during the Kofun period, okay. women's status in society was very similar to men. There were female clan leaders and a number of female empresses up until about the end of the eighth century. Wow! Um, and there was well, they shouldn't change. That. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what you ask as well, because there was often like a dual female male rule with both a woman and a man oh, wow. so the woman like kind of with Himiko and his one male attendant who may have been a lover or whatever we're not sure um, but basically you'd often have a woman handling religious matters where men deal with the more secular parts um, so it's kind of oh, okay. I don't know if that answers the question exactly but uh, yeah I, I was just I was thinking uh, like with my Irish historian head on there and I was thinking it sounds kind of similar to the High King mm, yeah. concept in Ireland which is often people often think of it as a political uh, rule but it wasn't really it was, it was really more ceremonial and religious like the High King didn't really actually have necessarily political power in, in every instance sometimes they did but a lot of times they didn't so I, I wonder if it was a similar yes, kind of and setting. there's a, a couple of things that were sort of done to give the emperors more of that sort of direct power so they created a system called the Kabane system um, these were basically just titles of nobility that only the emperor could give so okay. two of the titles were Omi and Muraji this meant uh, Omi were male clan leaders who claimed direct descendancy from the mythical first emperor. Muraji were male clan leaders who claimed direct descendancy from really important kami. What mattered was that you could only get high government offices if you had a title. So this became sort of the aristocracy. Ah, uh, okay. And it is important to note that at this point it was hereditary, which meant that you can advance in your life. Like, it's not set in stone because the emperor can uh, give you a title. But basically, if you get to a certain level, your uh, your heir will inherit that level and then they can continue advancing for, like, generations. Um, right. So, ah, so this is where the Game of Thrones element comes in. There's a greasy yes. pole to climb. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so it was kind of like you create a save point for your descendants. Yeah. Like, you get <laughs> yeah. to a certain level, and then the next generation can keep going. Uh, he was only an the, Earl, but my son is a Duke. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> so another thing the uh, emperor did was organize people into occupational groups that were called Be. Uh, B-E. So these were like farming Be fishing, military service, but service, but uh, mostly farming. Um, so these were also hereditary. They were kind of like hereditary guilds or well, what have you. So it was basically like, like a caste system, really. It does sound a little bit like that, doesn't it? It's kind of like, I know, obviously in Ireland as well, you're a farmer, your father was a farmer, and uh, so on and so on. But very um, much more formalized in that, yeah, these people are farmers. <laughs> um, so that is something that's very... Um, the sort of lines drawn between different occupations is very central to the development later of samurai, obviously, because there was like okay. a military service bit. You are the people who do military, you know? I always thought a flaw in that pro that caste system was like, just because you're a carpenter, a competent carpenter, doesn't mean your son is going to be or your daughter or whatever. Mm. So like what happens if you're good at carpentry, but then your son uh, you die, your son becomes the carpenter. He has no skill with his hands at all and can't put, can put a building together 
or you know can't yeah. even put lay a few bricks together but he's stuck with that job forever <laughs> that's what he is now yeah that's what he is but yeah. I, 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 I wondered if I wondered if uh, this sort of this sort of bear thing was were there certain clans that were assigned to each yes, or, or could actually. you be from any clan no, that's a, a great question. I think, Michael, what you mentioned, it's very true, but I think it's it's just a way for leaders to organize their resources, really. So even if you're a shit carpenter, it's more like we need to have a thousand carpenters. And if some of them are shit, that's fine. But if we keep these people as carpenters, we know... Basically, <laughs> we'll, we'll make them administrators. Yeah. You just go and collect the wood. Yeah. You go and collect the wood. It's fine. Basically, each, yeah. each clan was assigned one or more bit, which meant that a clan... They, they were separate, though, so it wasn't like within a clan you have a bear because the clan... Well, actually, I'm not 100% sure on this. It's all a bit confusing. But basically, a clan might be in charge of, you know, a fishing and or in charge of this. So the, the bear is serving that clan. But what's important for the emperor is that the bear is also directly... Um, sort of subservient to the emperor. So instead of, as oh, before, okay. clans okay. spread out throughout the land, now you also have bear spread throughout the land um, that uh, gives the emperor eyes and ears all over, allowing the mm. court to sort of get unfiltered information and meddle in local affairs. And sort of personal authority and personal influence. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I did want to mention as well, as far as women and their role, like inheritance could happen through the female line. Uh, one thing that's interesting is uh, after marriage, uh, the wife would often usually continue living with her family after the marriage. And then the man would either move in or like visit. Um, there was... On, along similar lines, there were no prohibition that against. Sounds like a great system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, there was no prohibition against masturbation, homosexuality, and then more Chinese culture came in and ruined things. Confucianism and Buddhism. Sorry, guys. I mean, uh, I know there's good aspects to it. Your sexual determination was fine <laughs> until Confucianism came in and ruined everything. Pretty That's much. Good. So when this Kofun, the keyhole tomb period, started, it was at the start of China's Three Kingdoms period where basically the Han Dynasty, which had been going for ages, shattered into war. So instead of having China as a sort of huge power next to you, they started having um, Korea as a cultural influence, which was uh, not a unified country at this point either, but it was kind of more advanced, uh, quote-unquote, than Japan, and Japan needed iron as well. So they picked up things like mounted combat from Korea, and then in sort of the 400s, contact was re-established with multiple Chinese courts, because there were three of them, famously. Um, but also what's important is, even though there might not have been like direct contact with courts of China, there were Korean and Chinese immigrants because of the war on the continent, and they brought new political ideas, arts, and architecture. Um, so this is when the Chinese Trade writing goods, system... All of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. And... Uh, Importantly, the Chinese writing system was introduced here. So this is what I was saying before. In the 400s after Christ, that's when they started writing stuff down. And that was still just with Chinese characters for a while. They didn't have their own script. Wow. Um, so And Buddhism also was introduced. Uh, so both the writing and Buddhism changed everything. And over the next few centuries, uh, Japan would adopt more Chinese culture and systems of government, basically. So that kind of... So in some ways... Would it be fair to say that they adapt them to, to, yeah. to, they make them Japanese. You know? Absolutely, they have uh, the Japanese people, and historically have a way of making things their own when they uh, enter the <laughs> country. But this sort of summarizes both prehistoric and ancient Japan. This brings us up to what they call uh, classical Japan, and I'll 
I'll start to dive into Buddhism and that in a sec. Uh, but are, do you have any questions or anything on so, what we've gone through? So I was just going to say, like, some parallels to be drawn. Um, I, I'm, I'm just conscious of the fact that uh, Japanese history is quite alien. Um, well, alien to me, I guess, because I've never really studied it. But I just mean in terms of, like, any of our listeners who are maybe a little bit more uh, up to date on European and American history, there's some parallels to be drawn here by the sounds of it uh, between Japan developing its writing systems uh, using a sort of a foreign script um, with Europeans maybe in the north doing something similar with Latin as as religious influence comes in from the church in, in Rome. Um, the first sort of written things you'll find in Ireland and, and, and Britain and, and, and so on will be will be Latin script, right? It'll be church writings and that kind of stuff. And then that gets adapted into the local languages. So it's a similar kind of a kind of a process, I guess. It just happens gradually over time as the influence grows, right? Is that fair to say? I'd say so, yeah. Um, the other question is, like, what year are we talking here? Like, what, what kind of century are we in now? So basically, I just summarized up to, up from about uh, 10,000 BC. That's, to, yeah, like, that's like 20,000 years you just did, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, see, I'm, I'm very good at, at quickly breezing through. There was a couple of ice ages there <laughs> between that two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, this brings us up to say about well i'm going to talk about 587 for a second um because it's kind of an important year it's kind of the shift uh with where buddhism becomes uh part of japanese culture so that's kind of where we're at because at this point there were arguments in court over whether to adopt this new fancy new religion uh or not and (laughs) in 587 one side of the argument is crushed by force by the other side um so Why is it important whether they're adopting this new religion? Well, there were these old conservatives who, as we talked about, they claim descent literally from kami, from gods, and that's how they get their power. So adopting another religion would obviously diminish their claim. Ah, yeah. Um, Threatens their claim. Yeah, and as we said, there's been, like, an influx of... Uh, foreign culture and, like, architecture and all sorts of stuff uh, from China and Korea. So basically there's a pro-Buddhism side that are kind of the upstarts. They've newly risen to power. They're sort of treasurers and traders with a lot of contact with outside peoples, which is also why they like Buddhism, this foreign religion. So they were the ones who won, the people who liked Buddhism. Um, So it's a big victory for bureaucrats and sort of managers over traditional clan leaders at this point. Um, And there's a couple of changes. Um, Instead of the previous ranking system I mentioned, they they have a new cap system, which is literally just wearing hats with different colored feathers, 12 color coded (laughs) feathers, which I don't know if like Power Rangers is influenced by this, but I really like that. Like, oh, yeah, surely you wear wear a hat with a different colored feather that shows your rank and what area you're in. It's kind of a Gryffindor Hufflepuff kind of thing. What what you're (laughs) it's beautifully simplistic, though. Yeah, I mean, that's that is, you know, you, you just can't go wrong. Can you? No, he's a green hat and that. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> and this is, uh, as you can probably assume, adapted from similar systems already in place in China. Um, so uh, this system is mostly no longer hereditary. Uh, there's also what's called the Taika reforms, which kind of includes uh, pretty much all weapons being confiscated. Be, which I mentioned before, the sort of hereditary guilds, they're abolished. And centrally, all land is made public. So it's all owned by the imperial house now. Uh, you don't own land anymore. Wow. It's all the, the emperor's land, which obviously uh, will become important um, as we move on. 
Um, they also introduced stuff like provinces, which are kind of still in in uh, in effect today. <laughs> um, and there were state appointed governors throughout the land. So, would a lot of sort of would this be the time when say um, local shogun and that would would start to associate themselves with a certain Buddhist temple, and they would you know, be they would have influence over a certain Buddhist temple or this type of thing? Um, well, they w- there wouldn't have been shogun yet. You're probably thinking of, like, more uh, local governors at this point, which would later develop into more sort mm. of warlord-type uh, people. Um, but I did read a lot of shit about Buddhism, and I decided not to include it because there's all this stuff about different <laughs> sects um, that I'll, I'll get into it in a, in a little bit. But... I don't think that would be. That's probably a different podcast, all right. That's a that's a different series, probably. Yeah, podcast, yeah. right? Yeah, I I, mm. I guess I don't know. Um, I I don't think there was enough upheaval at this point because this was all fairly uh, stable times. Like there were a couple of hundred years where like one clan dominated pretty much the court, even if they weren't always the emperor, they were kind of always in control. They were called the Fujiwara, so. There wasn't as much, well, there was obviously scheming, but there wasn't as much like, like later on you would literally see like warrior monks and everything with kind of carving out their own realms within Japan, uh, which is awesome. (laughs) And like farming rebellions where like farmers took over and kind of created their own little rebellion country for almost 100 years. Uh, But at this point, everything's fairly stable. So that's kind of, the pressure is kind of slowly going to rise over the next few hundred years here. Um, okay. So I'm going to jump ahead to the Heian period, which is uh, a couple of hundred years. It's kind of the s- late 700s yeah, to 1100, 794 to 1185. Um, th- this period started okay. when the capital was moved to modern-day Kyoto. And what this period is known for is art. Like, when you look into Japanese history, you're always going to know that there's a certain period where aristocrats became really into art... And a lot of people say that basically aristocrats got bored with running the country, and that's what led to military leaders taking <laughs> over. While there is some truth to that. Oh, <laughs> taxation systems, like, fuck that. It's just so boring. Let's have a war. Look at this cherry tree painting. There's a lot of that. Like, if you search Heian period, there's so much amazing art. This is where, like, there's a cultural blossoming, basically, where the courts, as always, were influenced by China. Confucianism and Buddhism were becoming big. And there were lots of classics, like actual novels written in this era. Like, n- now they have their own uh, scripts. There's two scripts of Japanese, Hiragawa and uh, Katakana, that were invented during this time. And interestingly... Um, like they're kind of feminine and masculine as well in that the pillow book which is kind of a a rom-com of the time it was written in japanese which is the sort of the feminine script and then chinese i think was still used as sort of more of a an administrative masculine script so to speak oh wow but basically okay. culture culture was flourishing it seeped to the common people as well with traveling bards and like a lot of when you think of classical japanese uh culture is stems from this era and i think it is unfair to say that oh people they only cared about culture so the whole country went to war because people got ambitious like there's a few things that actually uh fuck things up more than the culture <laughs> hindsight's a great thing too you know with all these things yeah so so one of the things here that actually led to the upcoming war that seven samurai takes place in um one of the things it, 
that led to the imperial government losing their power was something called Shoen, which is private hereditary lands. Like I said, everything was public lands. It all belonged to the emperor, right? But the problem... Well, it wasn't a problem at first. Basically, the court was granting these as boons. Like, as a rule, everything's public, but that means it's mine, so I'm going to give it to you when you do something nice for me. So lands were kind of distributed, and these lands didn't have to pay federal taxes, and they kind of policed themselves. And, uh, yeah, it, it basically, government official got these as payments, and that was kind of an issue. Um, the court also disbanded the military, which before <laughs> the year of 1792, Japan had a national military. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well That's pretty advanced. Yeah. That's pretty advanced, comparatively speaking, like having a national military at that stage. Well, maybe it was, but the problem was the military was shit, Mark. Um, <laughs> it was a militia of farmers. <laughs> Basically, anyone aged 20 to 59 could be conscripted and they would serve like maybe a month of the year. So it was kind of like a militia uh, and they had like, uh, I don't know, pretty untrained infantry. They had some horse archers, but those were usually nobles from well-off families. And because there was, so there were a lot of people in it, but they weren't very good. And people were dodging the call, deserting, and province governors. Uh, all of that. Yeah. yeah. The governors of province. Buying their way out, all of that kind of stuff. And out in the sticks, yeah. like governors. Shins, shin splints. You can't send me to Vietnam. I've got shin splints, honestly. <laughs> um well, they, the thing was, at the time, there wasn't even that much war. That was the thing, right? Because uh, we, we were in this period of stability. There were no foreign aggressors. Right. Uh, so province governors ended up using them for, like, non-military things, like maybe building buildings or farming or whatever. Uh, so, right. yeah. Um, so it, they were fighting bandits, but they were also actually used as farmers. And they probably were farmers. They probably didn't have the proper training to do fighting anyway. So... Basically, over time, it was found that this was just not efficient. They decided maybe we should go more towards quality and less quantity. Maybe we don't want, uh, you know, loads of people. And actually, like, the problems they were facing were bandits and chasing criminals and bandits. It worked better with a small, agile, sort of fast horse unit rather than... Like a security force rather than... A professional force rather than kind of a conscripted force. Exactly. And that is when we, this is why everything I've said is relevant, because uh, (laughs) this leads us to the creation, basically, over time, of a new warrior class called Bushi, which means warrior. Um, And samurai actually means one who serves. So a samurai is a Bushi, a warrior in service of a lord. You've probably also heard of Ronin. I think that's mentioned in Seven Samurai, which is a masterless uh, warrior. Yeah, the masterless samurai, yeah. and Bushi, is that, is that people who are trained in Bushido, the, the uh, martial arts? I assume those things yeah, are... Yeah, really- Bushido, uh, I'll touch on a bit further uh, later on. It's kind of, I don't want to say it's bullshit, but the idea we have of Bushido <laughs> is uh, constructed after the fact, you know? Um Bushido oh, okay, okay. is, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I could mention it now, I have a whole section of notes on it, but Bushido means like the way of the warrior, because 
it, it means warrior, as I said. It's kind of a rose-tinted way of looking back at yeah. it. It's kind of a way of connecting Japanese warrior culture with Western chivalry and sort of saying, these are the rules they uh, followed, okay, whereas okay. samurai existed for such a long period of time and their main thing that they needed to be was loyal to the person they were serving. There could be pieces of shit in every other regard. It didn't matter. There definitely were people who followed right, more... Okay. <laughs> I don't know what might be considered chivalrous uh, rules or what have you, but chivalrous by us in the West. Yeah. So this, so what you're saying basically is this is a this is a Western perversion of the idea of what a samurai is to try and tie them closer to medieval knights and chivalry or all of that kind of romance. Is there any samurai in in the film that would actually live up to that kind of uh, ethos? I suppose it's it's a really interesting question. I probably can't give like as good of an answer as I would like to because there's like. I have read this book called Bushido, which is written by Inazo Nitobe in the early 1900s. And it is kind of doing exactly what we were saying, connecting Bushido to Western uh, concepts. It's kind of written for a Western uh, audience in a way, but it's also Bushido has kind of been co-opted over time to like, this is how you're a good citizen in Japan as well. So it's right. kind of like a okay. muddled concept. Uh, so when you're asking if some, if they would be following Bushido, there definitely are people who are like, have these traits that would be considered admirable in Japan even today. Like in Seven Samurai, we have characters who like the the main uh, the main one of the leader of the samurai is obviously like super stoic, like has all these stereotypical like mm. just you yeah, know for s- sure. strength in the face of adversity, all this stuff. But Bushido, he's Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bushido's just had a lot of different concepts lumped into it over time. Uh, I mean, samurai followed lots okay. of different religions, for example, and the term itself it was first written in the Edo period, so 1600s to 1800s. And of course, oh, wow. they... Oh, so way later. I mean, maybe it was in use before them, but it was written down then. Uh, and obviously, as we know from 1600s to 1800s, they definitely romanticized the samurai in the way, same way like er- early 1800s Sweden, uh, my country, would romanticize Vikings, which has influenced the depiction mm-hmm. of Vikings now, as we know. Um, so sure. it wasn't really... Or the British with Highlanders as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's true. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So anyway, yes, that that's kind of a an aside. So the samurai or the the professional military class is starting to form because the need to deal with outlaws, bandits, and all that kind of stuff is not being effectively handled by a ragtag conscripted force. Yes, that's essentially where we are, right? Exactly, and the military is nicely disbanded. put, Mark. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but basically, there were loads of opportunities because landowners which do exist now because they've been given land. They need protection, tax collection. They need to fight rebellions and bandits. Like, it's a big country as well. If you put Japan over a history of, uh, sorry, a map of Europe, it covers a lot of Europe. So there's a lot of land to be managed here. Um, The capital also needed bodyguards and police, basically. So these warrior gangs, they're kind of loosely formed where people just recruit people around them. Uh, Quality and skill will vary wildly. But what is important and what we see as well in Seven Samurai is that charisma and influence is going to be really important for the leaders of these groups. Um, Because, I mean, yeah, the main reason to follow a warlord is personal gain. It's not necessarily honor. Uh, What can he get me? Yeah. 
And so in that sense, they're very similar to bandits, uh, <laughs> much like pirates and, you know, privateers are, kind of, it's kind of a, a vague line, yeah. but there's a lot of tentative al- buccaneers, yeah, buccaneers <laughs> even, um, so there's alliances formed between these gangs, makes for great stories. But what's interesting is Japan at this point has lots of laws and bureaucracy, but there's no real laws to govern this because it's all so new. Um, but but a few important factors are that warlords, they're usually... Um, well, some of the, the most influential warlords are descended from imperial families because it gives them an advantage in recruiting. So you don't necessarily need to have, like, you know, royal, quote-unquote, blood or anything, but, like... It helps if you have fame. You have the famousness of it the clan yes. name or whatever, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is where a lot of people summarizing the history are like, and then the, you know, court became, uh, you know, uh, they didn't pay attention and they got fucked, which is true in a sense, but the Heian court, they weren't necessarily idiots. They did have some things to keep the samurai power in check. Like, for example, there was still this hierarchy that uh, existed across the whole country you know where before like power flows from above from the kami and so on and everyone kind of bought into this hierarchy that put the capital at the top there were though some issues where it finally kicked off so i'm going to get into that now where basically there were two big clans uh or no sorry i guess they weren't clans maybe they were uh no i'd say they were clans but they're also bands of warriors at this point uh minamoto they had the backing of uh fujiwara these uh this clan that had sort of run the whole country for a few hundred years. And then there were the Tyra, um, who had the backing of retired emperors, which I have to mention, at one point... Retired pow- emperors? Yes. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> at is one weird. point... Okay. Um, so Death match. Retired <laughs> emperors. Death. Yeah, I was, was so going to ba- say, you can retire, is it? It's like the Pope. Yes. Oh, I'm finished. Ba- too old. But here's the thing that's crazy, um, that there were a period of like 200 years where the clan Fujiwara were in control. So they were not always emperors, but they were basically controlling the courts. So the emperor's right. power is diminishing. But at one point, power was then snatched by a former emperor who had abdicated and gone to be a monk. Um, so basically, wow. Fujiwara were in a position of weakness. And this retired emperor was like, I guess I'm the real emperor now. Um and his successors <laughs> continued this. So for about a century, there were rulers who were actually retired emperors, with the emperors themselves still being figureheads. Um, so you'd be an emperor and then retire and then maybe get the power once the retired emperor died or whatever. Um, wow. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so weird. From the side of emperors, they obviously wanted power back from the Fujiwara, so they, or at least some of them, and they got that power back. But the problem was, even though the power was in their hands, it was still just diminishing the power of the actual emperor. So that was kind of still going down and down, which led to the whole... So you're watering it down no matter what you're doing. Like, it's now being watered down by multiple, multiple sort of sources, right? Exactly. I I had a question about, about like, the the groups of samurai. So so there's different groups of samurai who are, who are answerable to their local, their local warlord, their local, their local chieftain or lord or whatever. Does the emperor... And probably no, given what we just said. But does the emperor himself have like a direct control over their own sort of troop of samurai, or or no? Is it just the warlords having? Like the emperor doesn't have his own samurai. Um, that's a that's a good question. I think in the capital, samurai did exist to a large extent. They were like 
I, 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 yeah, they were the police. They were the bodyguards. And oh, okay. this was a okay. period of intense intriguing. It wasn't quite, it was like season one of Game of Thrones before the fucking war broke out. <laughs> you know, there's still loads of, before it kicks off. Yeah, so yeah. many, intri- so much intriguing, so many, so much assassination, but it's not all out warfare yet. So you're definitely going to have like okay. loads of samurai as bodyguards around you at all times, especially higher up in the sort of, on the emperor level. Okay, so let's. So we've got a powder keg ready to go here. So assume, I'm going to assume there's a war. Coming. There is. There's uh, what's called the Genpei War. Uh, basically, is how the samurai took over Japan, um, and it was a fight for independence for the Kanto region. Uh, this was in just to keep the timeline straight. We're we're in 1180 now. Um, and this is basically a revolt against the Tyra. I mentioned them as one of the powerful uh, clans or powerful war, yeah, yeah clans mm-hmm. um, or warlord bands, whatever. And they've gotten incredibly powerful at this point. And it's a, basically a war between the Minamoto and the Tyra, where the Tyra clan is eventually destroyed. Um, and a person called Minamo- uh, Minamoto no Yorimito emerges as the victor, and he creates a government that is run by warriors in Kanto as an independent state. So he actually creates oh, okay. his own state of, like, ruled by warriors, but he makes... He's really de- not messing around. Yeah, no. <laughs> but he, what he does Sparta. is... Sparta. <laughs> he, he makes a deal with the current retired emperor, who is ruling at the time, um, to be the peacekeeping force. Because, uh, because of this war that's happened, there's rebellions all over the country, uh, and people right, are... Okay. Nobles are losing their land and so on. So Yurimito, he is basically like, I'll be the peacekeeping force and you can keep being the emperor. So even though it's kind of an independent state, it's also, they're both kind of ruling over Japan. And this is when we start to see this sort of segregation. In a sense, he's the first shogun. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And so Jacob, are they are they hostages now, the emperor? Not yet. <laughs> uh, not, not quite yet, because at this point, they're still... They're still running in parallel, in tandem, and they do sort of share tasks where, like, administrative tasks are still, to my understanding, sort of run by the emperor and stuff. So they're they're still kind of filling different functions. Uh, by the time of the Seventh Samurai film, that's all fucked, uh, where basically the emperor does become, as you say, a, a hostage, more or less. But... Um, what this first shogun did, he put in place policies to make sure his military government would survive his death, and the shogunate would pat or the shogun position would pass to his son. But uh, interestingly, his uh, wife's family first his force first son to resign after his death, and then killed his first son. And since the new shogun was too young, the uh, Hojo clan, which was the clan of the wife, governed in his stead. So at this point, we have a Hojo Regency. So the Shogun became another figurehead. So both the Emperor and the uh, and the Shogun are figureheads <laughs> at this point. And this lasted for hundreds of years. The Emperor wears no clothes. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of figureheading in uh, Japanese history, basically. Um, it leads to lots of really interesting intrigue where, like, Yurimito's wife officially becomes a nun, uh, but is still the actual power behind the throne, much like how the retired emperor became a monk, but was officially the power behind the, or unofficially the power behind the throne. Um, so I'm just going to try to move on a little bit further to the 1200s, 1274. Uh, you may have heard of some Mongol invasions to Japan. 
Yes, indeed. Yeah. The Mongol invasions. Finally, something I know yeah. about. So in, uh, in <laughs> the Mongols. God, they loved invading. They did. Oh. Uh, in <laughs> they love a war. Oh, they love a war. In uh, in 1274, Kublai Khan and the Mongols uh, launched an invasion. And they had to retreat. After the fact, they say that they left because of a typhoon, the kamikaze, the divine wind, that sort of took him out. Excuse. Well, that might or might not have happened. The Japanese might just have done some uh, good fighting. But what we do know is a few years later in 1281, when they returned with a bigger army, the Mongols, they are actually demolished by a typhoon, definitely this time. So it's kind of a mythical thing in Japanese history that literally the divine wind came and because they might have been fucked without it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the invasions were pushed back, but they were a big headache for the shogunate um, because basically the way they usually paid off their uh, subordinates is to give them land. Um, but the problem, of course, when you're fighting a foreign invader is you don't really have land after a war to give someone. And yeah, they want all of it anyway. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, like because they're all already your subordinates. So you, most of the wars would be with uh, other clans, right. you know, so then you'd carve out a piece of yeah, their yeah, land. Yeah. And in, uh, annoyingly, Buddhist temples, they also wanted payments because their prayers, they said, had brought the typhoon. So you got to give, <laughs> give them their slice of the cake as well. Nice. Um, so this kind of led to land conflicts. It's an unusual interpretation of Buddhism, yeah. for sure. Oh, religion. We'll let it slide. Oh. We'll let it slide. Yeah, there's a lot of um, <laughs> new Buddhist sects at this point, actually. And I, as I said, I don't want to get into them, but there's Zen Buddhism, which is probably the most famous yes. one uh, at this point, which is all about simplicity, relying on yourself. It prioritizes meditation and focus above reasoning and logic, which is more Confucian. And this sort of appealed to the samurai. Uh, you can still see the Zen influence all over Japanese culture with tea ceremonies and gardening and sword making and so on. Um, but anyway, yeah, there were land conflicts because of this. Raiders all over the gaff. Uh, women's rights definitely took another blow because at this point they declared that the land of a samurai could only pass to one male heir because otherwise it would just keep splintering, causing further conflict. Basically, they had the shogunate running for a while. That was kind of a, a an impressive, powerful warlord who had won a war. And then an emperor took over, and then another shogun took over. And it was, for most of the warlords and whatnot, it was the original shogun that had actually granted them their land. They didn't have that much uh, allegiance uh, to this new shogun. Okay. Um, which, reads, which basically leads us up to the eruption of the whole country at war time period that is the, you know, Seven Samurai settings. So just to just to sort of put a, a, a sort of a, as clean or as easy a definition as we can on the thing, the emperor is is there the whole time. There's oh, yeah. an emperor the whole time, but they at this point just through centuries of machinations and different sort of uh, uh, power structures, their real world legitimate power isn't always there. They don't always uh, impose authority, and that's often been wielded by shoguns, and shoguns are essentially extremely powerful generals basically yes. warlords who are sort of running the show while the while the emperor just sort of sits to the side and just does what he's told and shuts up yes that's basically what's happening just one question as well jacob um you mentioned the ronin um as being a samurai who didn't have any masters is that because they could choose a master and they chose not to have one or they chose to be kind of like a mercenary or is it because they dishonored themselves and they were thrown out of a certain group or something like that that's a great question that i don't know exactly the answer to but i imagine that it could would vary a lot because 
because of all these conflicts, a lot of people would just uh, die. <laughs> and you might be left as like a sole survivor. I know seppuku, the, you know, uh, ritual uh, suicide becomes a big thing as well, where if your uh, commander dies, maybe you're c- compelled to commit suicide yourself. But uh, as far as I'm aware, there's like a, a dozen different ways to become a ronin, but it might just be you have the training and there's no fighting going on. See, that was kind of the thing leading up to this as well, where Fair it's enough. like, yeah. I can't afford to keep all you samurai around. There's no war. But they fixed that with an enormous war just now. <laughs> Basically, the Shindo- Shingoku Jedi <laughs> is... Uh, just an eruption of this enormous war of samurai forces going against each other. I don't, uh, but Ronin could also be like, fuck this. I am not getting enough out of serving this master. I'm going to turn bandit. That would still be considered a yeah. Ronin at that point. War is uh, is Hell. one way, I suppose, of solving an un- unemployment problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Throughout history. Yeah. So the, the reason this uh whole time period broke out was this ineffective shogunate uh in the early years of the 1400s um there was a son of this uh th- there was a son of this shogun that was ruling and there was a great decline in his power where basically they didn't as i said they did no need to show the same respect they had to the old shogun um and they ap- attempted to fix this the shogunate by waging a war on sort of southern court loyalists uh, which was a thing we won't get into, but basically they were trying to get some war going and to give prizes and such, but it was just costly and ineffective, and samurai started coveting their neighbor's land instead, knowing the shogun didn't have much power to stop them, and uh, yeah, basically this is where we get daimyo uh, warlords who would basically battle for control over the whole country uh, as this uh, went on. It sounds like a complete mess. All together, yeah, <laughs> and uh, r- ripe for exploitation. Yes. So right now we're, we're in the f- we're in the fourteen hundreds. Yeah. Um, it's all kicked off basically. It's, There's uh, <laughs> warlords upon warlord, and it's all around the succession of the shogunate. Yeah, so I'll like, I'll I'll go into the details as briefly as I can of the ex- the exact events that made it uh, sort of erupt in fourteen sixty four. There was a Yoshimi, a shogun who has spent his he was one who actually did just spend his time appreciating the arts, didn't give a shit about really governing. <laughs> the arts were flourishing, to be fair <laughs> to him, uh, but he wanted to retire. I like his style. I like him already. Yeah, he wanted to retire, but he ha- beautiful wants to retire. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> he had no son, though, at the point, uh, at this point. So he he uh, he called upon his brother, who had been living as a monk. A recurring theme. Um, his brother had been living as a monk, and he had originally had no interest in becoming shogun, but he would eventually be convinced. And this was all smooth sailing until Yoshimi's wife had a baby, and she wanted her son to be the heir, and not the brother. And at the shogun, Yoshimi himself, didn't actually care. Uh, but <laughs> there was just so much intriguing going on where basically... He's my favorite guy so far. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's like, ah, yeah, I no know I'm interest. in charge, but I really yeah. just like the arts and I want to retire young. I mean, he's a man after my own heart. I'm able to get him my more competent brother. I mean, that's just... Yeah, perfect. Uh, he d- he didn't care, but like there were others who saw chances to make moves against rival clans by supporting either the brother or the son. And this was the Yamana clan versus the Hosokawa clan. Again, this the names of these won't be on the written, but basically, uh, there were like in 1467 there were about eighty thousand men on each side, all in Kyoto, ready to fucking kick off. Wow. 
Massive, massive army. It was a huge standoff where neither side, interestingly, wanted to make a move because they had a fear that whoever acted first would be labeled the rebels, right? So, Ah, because it wasn't like set in stone who was officially the the leader. Um, But in in 1467, one of the clans set fire to the other clan's house and things just escalated (laughs) and there were attacks on property and basically the whole capital burned to ash, which is a great symbolic end to this relative peace. Uh, They Like, the whole capital was a war zone and fighting also broke out across the land, either in support for one side or the other or just using the chaos to go nuts with what we were saying before i want th- i want my neighbor's land wow. let's fucking go i mean that is a beautiful piece of symbolism yeah. the capital goes burns down and then it all just goes to shit yeah. like, basically everyone was like, just like let's go motherfucker we've been waiting forever and it lasted 150 years <laughs> we're in shingoku jedi Describing the conflicts of it would be like trying to describe like a pocket watch with words. It's not going to be as telling as mentioning just how the hands of the clock moved. There were map changes constantly within fighting, in intrigue. Farmers and merchants suffered hugely. Uh, like it was, I think, called like the despair of farmers, which is depicted in Seven Samurai because there's no one looking out for them because warriors are going to town and they're all looking out for themselves. Many of them turned to religion. Um, there was something called the Iko Iki, a rebellious group that opposed the rules of governors and daimyo, kind of their own religious kind of sect. All this interesting shit kicking off. Um, but it just went on for, for ages and ages. And that is where Seven Samurai takes place. So Seven Samurai comes in after just, we're a century into just chaos. Yeah. Or near, near enough a century into, into, into just intermittent clan warfare, regional warfare, warlord warfare, people getting killed left, right and centre. If you're a farmer, you're probably going to have a yeah. shit time. Um, yeah. Which explains you probably need a new job. Yeah, which explains the movie brilliantly because in in the movie we we come across like I was saying in the one uh, one sentence summary, just like a beleaguered village of farmers who just who are just being raided yeah. constantly by a gang of bandits, essentially. So that's that's sort of thing. Uh, while the movie might not be historically like it might not be portraying accurate specific events, that kind of thing, it's accurate in terms of the context and in terms of the types of events that are happening. Is that fair yeah, to say? Absolutely. And is the actual premise of the film that a group of uh, samurai would come together to aid a village? Is that realistic? Is that something that was done to, to hire a group of mercenaries, essentially? Um, I'm not sure, but it doesn't... Like, it is very romanticized, isn't it? Like, it's... It's just as similar yeah, yeah, to the real sure. events as a Western film is to what happened in the, quote, Wild West, you know. Maybe there were events like that. And there's certainly, like, lots of legends and tales along similar uh, lines, but they would be along similar lines, but they're legends and tales, you know, rather they're romanticized. Um, yeah. Samurai, I mean, there was a lot kicking off. Uh, like, some of these, again, like I said, like, they were like farmer rebellions and all sorts of shit. Uh, that's really interesting. And honestly, it's such an eventful time period that it wouldn't surprise me if something very similar to the Seven Samurai events actually took place somewhere, you know? The only thing I might question is that the Samurai and Seven Samurai are very much idealized, or at least, like, the ones who show yeah. the ideals of what a samurai should be. So there might not be super realistic in that sense, but they are great characters all the same. 
Yeah, and I, I read that absolutely in in the research into the into the writing of it and, and the the pr- production of the movie that some of the characters, some of the samurai characters, were sort of became loosely based on on real people mm. who had like sort of like legends sort of build up around them and stuff. But what I was going to sort of ask was the, our sort of and obviously our 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 idea of what a samurai is is influenced by Western culture, which is largely based on this movie. I would yeah. say. Um, is, this is the period of time where people, when they think of samurai, the romantic concept of the samurai goes back to this period because of the prevalence of samurai in the society mm-hmm. due to the war. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, absolutely. So how how does it all coalesce? Like, what what brings this to, like, how does it how does it end basically? How does how does the or does it end? Like, what it, it does. It does end. It's actually really interesting when you look into the details of the characters who acted kind of as unifiers, because uh, they were unifiers, but everyone was kind of looking to raise their own power, um, obviously. But like, there's a person called o- uh, Oda Nobunaga, and he basically dissolved the uh, Ashikawa uh, Ashikaga shogunate, the shogunate we were talking about in 1573. Uh, this film takes place in 1586. And he launched his war of political unification uh, until his death. That was actually a, a few years before, uh, before this film. So at, at this point, we were moving towards... Uh, things becoming a bit more unified but there's basically like three different figures who play important roles in that i think uh nobunaga's son as well is very important but it's not considered that the time period is really over until uh the until 1615 is kind of when it's all put to close i i have a, a note here that Nobunaga, the guy I mentioned, his successor, he basically completed the campaign to unify Japan and he consolidated his reform, his rule with, you know, more reforms. Like, they love reforms once they get into power. So within a generation of the film ending, yeah. things had calmed down and there was more order. Yeah, I, I'd say as well, even though it was... Um, I think Mark described it well as like 150 years of near constant war where there would have been periods of, you know, stability for certain places yeah. uh, like sure. uh, Hideyoshi, who was the son of Nobunaga. He launched an invasion of Korea in 1592. So like he had enough clout to actually like kind of he was running the country. He was launching an invasion, Do a foreign invasion. Um, yeah, but like yeah. the failure of that mm. kind of damaged his prestige. He was pretty much, he had unified the country at that point. We just don't consider the period to be over until uh, the 1600s. Um, so it was kind of, we're, we're coming in at the end of the time period in the film. Uh, and so if we're, we're saying that it's, it's sort of finishing in the 1600s now, and it's being unified, but it's being unified under a shogun. It's still a shogunate with the emperor still sort of being off to the side as a ceremonial figure. Is that, is that, yes. is that fair to say? So that's, and that's still the case up until the 19th century? I so still I, like a shogun or sort of run of the show, right? Yes, I did so much reading on this that once I got to the film, I was like, wipe my hands of this. I'm not making any more <laughs> notes. So I don't have specifics on it. But in general, yes, it wasn't until like a restoration movement of like, oh, you know, a nationalistic sort of the emperor, let's bring him out again. And also samurai over time, uh, just to summarize very uh, w- widely, as warfare became less relevant, 
samurai became more administrative. They became kind of bureaucrats. Ah, okay. So they still existed, but they filled a vastly different role in society over time. And it was more sort of a kind of like a knighthood in the UK now, in a, to a certain extent, where a samurai was yeah. filling a different role in society, which all eventually led to them, you know, losing their prominent role. Which I guess is a natural progression for a, a prominent military role to become a to become a sort of an administrative civil, sort of a civil role or a civil authority. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the the question I have then is like, the samurai as a profession, or as a sort of a you know that that sort of warrior, uh, what did you call it, busho or bushi? Um, as a yeah, bushi. as a profession, that sort that sort of fades over time. Then is that is that yeah. say? so it sort of fades out of use? I will say even after this time period, it is still quite central because like the class stratification uh, is still very strong. Uh, towards the end of the 1500s, they have what they call a sword hunt. They've had several of these, I think, in Japanese history. But it's basically like gathering weapons from farmers. And uh, the one they had in the 1500s was like, we're going to gather all these swords, melt them down, turn them into a giant Buddha. Uh, and people <laughs> did it because they didn't have much choice or they really wanted a giant Buddha. But it's kind of this sort of thing that really deepened the farmer-warrior divide. Because uh, previously you could dabble in both. It was literally like, no, now well, if you're a samurai, you can't do any farming. And if you're a farmer, you can't do any samuraiing. So to, I guess, to, uh, to wrap it up in, in, into, a nice, uh, into a nice convenient... Uh, but we think the the movie the period of the movie is portraying is sort of the end or closer to the end of this period the sort of like a golden age of the importance of a samurai during this during this chaotic century and a half of, of warfare um and so it's 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 probably an accurate reflection in terms of it's the thing that inspired the movie's portrayal of samurais and this and the movie is the thing that that reflects the modern concept of what a samurai was in a sort of a, in a sort of an interesting way one was reflecting the other yeah. right absolutely absolutely and the important thing to know is that the samurai are jedi and jedi are, are space <laughs> samurai that's that's the important thing to know right <laughs> exactly i've kind of uh, bumbled my way through all of my notes i i di- i guess i did want to mention like there were, like the mongol invasions that was a point where they realized mm. that uh their swords like it led to a lot of developments where like their swords were kind of inefficient against the leather armor of the mongols and they were like oh shit and it led to uh the development of this practice of having two swords which is very famous uh obviously for japanese uh samurai to always carry two swords and that kind of as i said because they took the farmer's weapons away that became a symbol uh of the samurai like you're not allowed to wear a sword unless you are a samurai uh so they'd have uh, a long one and a oh, short wow. one for close hand-to-hand combat uh but there's so many steps like that of like gradual changes to the role of the samurai over time that are really interesting and that is also why any depiction of a samurai as just a general samurai is likely to be incorrect because it just changed so much over time. I think a samurai has existed a lot longer than the concept of a knight, and there's been so many changes throughout time um, that inherently it's like just things like the video game Ghost of Tsushima is just inherently very incorrect on so it's many just flawed. things. Yeah, it's just flawed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, we're not talking about that one right now. We're talking about Seven Samurai and. Like Kurosawa's dedication to making a a good and correct depiction of this time period, it mm. is so clear when you watch the film. Like besides everything we said now, if you haven't seen the film, it's a fucking amazing oh, film. Oh, it's an amazing I, movie. Yeah, it's an amazing movie. 
and I want to talk more about it at some other point, but uh, I think we better wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've certainly learned a ton about Japanese history, Jacob, and I, I, I will be encouraging you to do the research on another project very soon. Yeah, so you it, better Jacob, watch you've out. You've done a good job. So, you, so you've, you've done yourself. You've done yourself. Now in. you're screwed. Yeah, maybe one a season. <laughs> it only took me a year, guys. <laughs> um, well, one thing I always but what a year is, uh, <laughs> is uh, it's uh, nothing is simple. And the best way to learn that is to study a little bit of history. You realize, oh God, where do I start? What's the starting point? Because I need to explain how everything has come into effect before I get to the main thing I want to talk about, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, as far as sources, I did want to just mention uh, the dry, long book I read is called A History of Japan by John Godwin Kager and Richard Mason. Um, I'm not sure if I, I recommend, I definitely recommend like the first fourth of the book or whatever that goes into ancient and prehistoric uh japan pretty interesting and then it gets kind of muddled a little bit for me uh i have also got like i have this book bushido and it's really interesting in that a lot of the stuff that's in this book probably is accurate it's just kind of paints a picture that isn't necessarily giving a, a a full historical context but it's really interesting how it describes like a typical samurai calls a literary savant a book smelling sot i think we all would be book smelling sots um it says that bushido yes, I think that's probably fair to say. <laughs> bushido uh does not pursue um Oh, sorry, knowledge is not pursued as an end to itself, but as a means of attainment of wisdom. Hence, he who stopped short of this end was regarded no higher than a convenient machine which could turn out poems and maxims at bidding. I think that's a that's a that's a fine fine point for us to wrap it up on. I don't think anyone's going to come out with anything more profound than that. But don't worry, uh, dear listener, we will return to normal service after this episode, where Jacob will take. The hot seat back but before we go i would just like to point out if you do have a little bit more interest in uh the influence of japanese culture on the west we do have a sister show uh currently out which is called no mercy a cobra kai kickback <laughs> which is uh, a very interesting review of the uh, karate kid inspired netflix tv series cobra kai so i would encourage everyone to check that out on have a look on shows with you know.com for all of our sister shows but uh, I think for now that is the end of the reel. <laughs>